0: Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 10th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace.
1: And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Protesters breach government buildings in Brazil.
0: Kevin McCarthy wins the House speakership.
1: Russia rejects peace deal speculation as a hoax.
0: Biden visits the southern
1: border. An armed group abducts 32 people from a train station in Nigeria.
0: China carries out combat drills near Taiwan.
1: Israel bans the Palestinian flag from being flown in public.
0: A Seattle school district sues several tech giants.
1: 7,000 nurses strike in New York City.
0: One in 100-year floods force evacuations in Australia.
1: And a study finds disruptive science has declined. Our top story, an
0: intervention is decreed in Brazil as protesters breach government buildings. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, CNN, BBC News, Guardian and Bloomberg. On Sunday, Brazilian authorities said supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro breached the country's Congress, Supreme Court and presidential palace many calling for military intervention to remove Brazil's President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Video footage shows thousands of protesters destroying barricades, attacking police vehicles, damaging windows and furniture, and destroying artworks inside the government buildings in the capital, Brasilia. According to local media, at least 1,200 demonstrators were arrested on Monday, in addition to 300 on Sunday. And around 40 buses reportedly used to transport Bolsonaro supporters to the capital have been seized. The violent protests came days after Lula was sworn in as Brazil's president on January 1st. Lula announced a federal security intervention in Brasilia following the riots. Police regained control of the buildings by Sunday evening while Brazil's Supreme Court removed the governor of Brasilia, Ibanez Rocha, for 90 days for failing to prevent the riot. He will not be reinstated until his role has been fully investigated. Bolsonaro, who flew to Florida ahead of Lula's inauguration, claiming the vote was rigged, condemned the riots and compared them to actions he said were committed by the left in 2013 and 2017.
1: Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. At Improve the News, we separate the spin from the facts. And for this story, we begin with the left narrative coming from New York Times. Echoes of the January 6th Capitol riot are undeniable in this mob violence caused by supporters of Brazil's Trump-like former President Bolsonaro. Far-right Brazilians have followed the same playbook, baselessly claiming election fraud, before threatening democratic institutions. Now they must face the same fate as those who inspired them and be held to account.
0: We have a right narrative from Breitbart. Sunday's protests began peacefully, but this outcome shouldn't be surprising. As Brazilian society has long been under immense pressure, fueled by discontent over the Supreme Court's intervention in the elections to undemocratically favor Lula, as well as unanswered questions about the electoral process swept under the rug, protesters' expression of discontent ended in violence as a result of the injustice governing their society.
1: It's going to be interesting to see how long or how they handle this situation there in Brazil, you know, if you try to compare to what's happening here, I mean, we're still going on what two? Is it two years now or three years ago that this happened?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's see. Uh, I mean, it was a year ago. It was a year ago we had. Was it that. just a it year Janu- ago?
1: January sixth. Okay. Yeah, it was one year ago. Gotcha. But it
0: feels like longer. That's it. it does that's feel not like a compliment a, for our society. It feels it like longer. Like it's going
1: to be an ongoing thing for a while. So,
0: in my mind, Brazil seems like such a kind of a more of a laid back, you know, party forward right. culture. But I guess maybe if you judged us. You know, we kind of judge them by Carnival. If you just judged us by Mardi Gras, you'd think the same thing about us. again. Exactly. It's not fair. Exactly. That being said, I'd love to go sometime. I don't care who's
1: president. I know. Oh my gosh, (laughs) love to go there. In our next story, McCarthy wins the U.S. House speakership, and here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Forbes, Axios, and NPR Online News. Representative Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, was elected Speaker of the House of Representatives on Saturday, finally reaching the winning vote threshold after a record 15 rounds of voting, the longest vote since 1860. Voting began January 3rd, but many members of the Republican Freedom Caucus refused to vote for McCarthy without a series of concessions. On Friday, there was a breakthrough as 14 votes flipped in his favor on the 12th ballot. McCarthy secured the 216 votes, which traditionally would be too short of a majority needed on the 15th ballot. With six remaining GOP dissenters voting present, rather than for other candidates, as they did in previous rounds, the required majority was reduced. In order to gain the voters from hardline Republicans, McCarthy agreed to reduce the threshold of members needed to bring removal of the Speaker to a vote to just one. Other reported concessions included a rule that a move to raise the debt ceiling must be accompanied by spending cuts, establishment of a House Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, as well as an agreement to vote individually on 12 appropriation bills rather than one omnibus spending bill. During his inaugural speech, McCarthy said, It's time for us to be a check and provide some balance to the president's policies while he also committed to lowering the cost of living and to reduce wasteful Washington spending. Republicans won a narrow majority, 222 to 212, in November's midterms to take control of the House. Throughout the process of selecting a speaker, Democrats voted unanimously for Representative Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, who's now the minority leader.
0: All right, we've got a boatload of narratives on this political story, but don't worry, we'll get through them together one by one. Let's start with a Democratic narrative from CNN. Although McCarthy can celebrate finally being Speaker, the role has been gutted of most of its power, which he's handed off to ultra-conservative Freedom Caucus members. Having repeatedly miscalculated the size of his own support, McCarthy now finds himself at the feet of radical Republicans.
1: Fox News gives us a Republican narrative for this story. Passionate debate is the centerpiece of democracy. And that's what Republicans were doing over the days it took to get McCarthy elected speaker. Now that he has the gavel, McCarthy will continue to prove he's a great unifier of his party, and Republicans will deliver on their promises, including plans to reduce spending, tackle illegal immigration, and hold Democrats to account.
0: We've got a pro-Trump narrative from PJ Media. As the speaker vote dragged on, the mainstream media prematurely reported on former President Donald Trump's waning influence— Little did they know that Trump would reward McCarthy's loyalty by making sure the new Speaker's victory would be assured by convincing the last remaining holdouts to end their obstruction.
1: And the Washington Post gives us a cynical narrative. At the end of the day, Congress's dysfunction will continue because of its members' devotion to party over country. There was no better example of this than Democrats voting unanimously for a Speaker candidate who had no chance of winning. With the margins between the parties razor thin, Only bipartisan cooperation will get anything passed. But it doesn't look like the parties will be doing anything to help each other.
0: And the river card on this narrative royal flush is the nerd narrative from Metaculous. There's a 71% chance that Republicans will keep control of the House of Representatives in the year 2024. And day 320 of the fighting in Ukraine as Russia rejects the peace deal speculation as a hoax. Here are the facts as agreed upon by RT, Yahoo News, BBC News, The Guardian, Reuters, and the Kyiv Independent. On Monday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskova described as a hoax recent reports in Ukraine that Russia was trying to force Kyiv to sign a Korea-style peace deal to end the 10-month-long conflict. Oleksiy Denilov, from Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council reportedly suggested that the Kremlin's Dmitry Kozak is meeting with European politicians. The alleged intent is to sign a peace agreement similar to the previous Minsk Accords. Meanwhile, Ukraine denied Russian claims that a missile attack in the eastern city of Kramatorsk had killed more than 600 Ukrainian forces on Sunday. Moscow had termed the operation as a retaliatory strike in response to the deaths of 89 Russian troops killed in the recent Ukrainian shelling of Makivka. Elsewhere, two women died, and multiple people were injured in a reported Russian missile attack on a market in Shevchenkov, located in eastern Ukraine. On Sunday, Ukrainian President Zelensky said that Bakhmut and Soledar will hold on in spite of everything, even as a fierce battle rages in one of the bloodiest places along the front line. On Monday, Sergei Sherevati, Ukraine's Eastern Group of Forces spokesman, added that Russian troops shelled Solodar 106 times over the past 24 hours. In other news, the Kremlin also suggested that the supply of Western weapons to Kyiv, including French-made armored vehicles, would deepen the suffering of the Ukrainian people, delay the end of the conflict, and could draw NATO into a direct military confrontation with Russia.
1: Thank you, Scott, for the facts. Let's take a look at the spins. The first one is an anti-Russian narrative coming from Washington Post. It would be a mistake to say Putin's days as an aggressor are over. For the Russian president, defeat is not an option. He will never cede the four eastern provinces he has declared part of Russia to Ukraine. Moreover, if the Kremlin succeeds in toppling Ukraine, Russia will likely eye the Baltic countries of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, as well as Finland, Poland, and Romania. The U.S. and its allies must arm Ukraine and help Zelensky push back harder before it's too late. And the pro-Russia
0: narrative comes from the Moscow Times. The West has used the situation in Ukraine to create tension with Russia for years. President Putin will not allow the West to use Ukraine as a weapon to weaken and divide Russia. Instead, he will do the right thing to protect its national interests and the interests of its citizens the world will soon realize Russia is the only real guarantor of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity.
1: And the nerds from Metaculous are chiming in with their narrative, saying that there's a 15 percent chance of a coup or regime change in Russia by the year 2024. In our next story, President Biden makes his first visit to the southern border. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Daily Mail, CNN. Axios, Al Jazeera, and UPI. For the first time since taking office, U.S. President Biden on Sunday visited the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso, Texas. The U.S. has seen 2.2 million arrests for illegal border crossings in the last fiscal year. Ahead of his trip, border agents removed hundreds of migrants, predominantly Venezuelan, who had been camping outside a Greyhound bus station in downtown El Paso. This comes as the city saw 2,500 daily arrivals in the last week of December, though there's typically a decline in January. Biden spent a few hours at the border, mainly focusing on enforcement issues. He reportedly did not meet with any migrants at the processing center, although Biden officials suggested that this may have just been coincidental. Upon his arrival in El Paso, the president also met with Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who handed him a letter with five requested actions related to border security, reportedly including continued enforcement of the pandemic era Title 42 policy and resumed construction of the border wall. Amid criticism from Republicans accusing him of being soft on border security, Biden last week unveiled new immigration rules, essentially expanding Title 42 while allowing 30,000 migrants per month from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Mexico has also agreed to accept 30,000 deportees per month. After El Paso, Biden headed to Mexico for the North American Leaders' Summit with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to discuss supply chain issues, drugs, and so-called irregular migration.
0: All right, we've got a democratic narrative from The New York Times. Biden arrived at the border with a plan that should satisfy criticism from his left and right. By enhancing the Title 42 process and requiring striking a deportation deal with Mexico, Republicans should be happy that migrants must wait in Mexico until their asylum hearings. Likewise, progressives should be excited about the program to allow 30,000 new migrants per month to obtain visas.
1: And we counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Daily Caller. Those who are hopeful that this visit is the start of Biden doing something to tackle the border crisis should not be fooled. If history is our guide, these 30,000, quote, temporary visas per month are only temporary if Biden enforces them, which is unlikely given that his progressive base wants unlimited amnesty for all so-called asylum seekers. This was undoubtedly a calculated political stunt that does nothing but provide good headlines for the president as he enters his third year in office.
0: Kind of an unfixable problem, it feels like. I don't think anyone's going to be happy with with anything.
1: No, It's, it's, it's the definition of insanity.
0: Terror in Nigeria as an armed group abducts 32 from a train station. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Premium Times, and BBC News. Nigeria's Edo State Governor's Office stated on Sunday that a group of men armed with AK-47s had attacked the Tom Ikimi train station, some 111 kilometers or 69 miles, northeast of the state capital, Benin City. The attackers reportedly abducted 32 people. Armed herdsmen allegedly attacked the station as passengers waited for a train to Wari, an oil hub in nearby Delta State. Police added that the attackers shot multiple people while at the station, and one of those kidnapped managed to escape. On Monday afternoon, local authorities claim that security forces have rescued six hostages as search operations have been carried out near the station in search for the militants. The military and the police, as well as men of the Vigilante Network and Hunters, are reportedly taking part in the search and rescue operations, while the Nigerian Railway Corporation has closed the station until further notice. This attack comes just a month before Nigeria's general elections, in which security is one of the key issues for the candidates. In early 2022, gunmen killed at least nine passengers and kidnapped many others, with the last hostage being released in October. Nigeria has seen a steady rise in insecurity in recent years. a Boko Haram and its Islamic State group-affiliated insurgency in the Northeast— Banditry in the northwest, separatists in the southeast, and farmer herdsman clashes in central states have all contributed to the security situation.
1: Those were the facts, and we've got three spins. We begin with a pro establishment narrative coming from Premium Times. The Nigerian government is doing a solid job of pursuing these terrorists. Considering that six people have already been freed in such a short time, it seems reasonable to assume that local authorities are achieving success in search and rescue operations. And
0: Punch brings us the establishment critical narrative. As elections approach, security has become a hot topic in Nigeria as the government has failed to provide public safety. This attack could have been prevented if railway stations had small security features like closed-circuit television cameras, minor steps that would have made a great difference.
1: Turning our attention to China as they conduct large-scale combat drills near Taiwan. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, Japan Times, Reuters, DW, and Financial Times. China's military said on Sunday that it has conducted large-scale joint combat readiness patrols and actual combat drills around Taiwan, marking the second round of drills in less than a month. A statement from the PRC's People's Liberation Army, or PLA, Eastern Command, said the combat drills were to test troops' ability to counter provocative activities by external forces and separatist elements seeking Taiwan's independence. According to Taiwan's Ministry of Defense, the PLA's recent exercises included 57 combat aircraft, 28 of which entered Taiwan's self-declared air defense identification zone part of which extends over mainland China, with several also crossing the Taiwan Straits median line. On Monday, Taipei condemned China's combat exercise, saying Beijing was making groundless accusations. Taiwan's presidential office said it will neither provoke nor escalate conflicts, but will remain resolute in defending its sovereignty and security. Also on Monday, a high-ranking parliamentary delegation from Germany arrived on a four-day visit to Taiwan which China claims as its own territory, to send a sign of solidarity with the island and discuss the current threat situation. Meanwhile, the U.S. and Japan are reportedly deepening the integration of command structures and intensifying joint operations amid a possible conflict with China over Taiwan. U.S.-Japan security talks will be held Wednesday ahead of a bilateral summit between the two nations in Washington on Friday.
0: All right, we have a pro-establishment narrative on this escalating conflict, and it comes from Newsweek. China is preparing for war against Taiwan as part of its policy of reunification with the semi-autonomous island. And the only way to prevent such an event is to bolster Washington's deterrence and power projection in the region through additional national security funding. This would also convince U.S. regional allies to invest more in their security, Dictatorships and this rising tide of autocracy understand only the language of power. Russia's Ukraine invasion is proof that Washington must act now before it's too late.
1: An establishment critical narrative for this story is being provided by Global Times. Due to the overbearing U.S. actions and Washington's apparent departure away from the One China policy, tensions between China and the U.S. are rising. As with Ukraine, Washington and its Western allies are using Taiwan for geopolitical goals instead of focusing on the fact that the Taiwanese voted in local elections against such an aggressive stance against China. Beijing is pursuing the goal of peaceful reunification. But since the hegemonic U.S. misinterprets this as a sign of weakness, the risk of military escalation is increasing.
0: Got another nerd narrative from Attaculus. This one says there's a 16% chance that the U.S. and China will be at war by the year 2035. That one's pretty cut and dry. That'd be it's tough, yeah, tough it to is. argue with that one. No. Wow.
1: Okay. Okay. Hopefully they'll have trips to the moon by then.
0: Israel orders a ban on public Palestinian flag flying. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Times of Israel, Haaretz, Guardian, RT, Middle East Eye, and Al Jazeera. Israel's security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, on Sunday ordered police to remove Palestinian flags from public places, deeming their display an act of terrorism in the wake of mass anti-government protests in Tel Aviv that broke out the previous day. The announcement came only a few hours after Ben Gvir summoned Police Commissioner Kobi Shabtai to reprimand him regarding public festivals in the Arab town of Ara. The festivity celebrated the return of freed prisoner Karim Yunus, who served 40 years in jail on terror charges. Additionally, the minister instructed Shabtai to open a probe in order to scrutinize why his instruction to prevent celebrations of the prisoner's release in Arrah was only partially carried out by officers, demanding results of the investigation be presented to him. This is the latest punitive measure taken by the right-wing Benjamin Netanyahu's new government against Palestinian activism since taking office last month. His administration's actions have also included withholding some $40 million in tax revenues and stripping Palestinian officials of certain privileges. Nationalist official Ben-Gavir became Israel's security minister after his Jewish power party, Atzma Yehudit, agreed to join Netanyahu's coalition government in exchange for several concessions, including a policy of banning Palestinian flags from state-funded institutions. Following the unilateral decree, local news outlet Channel 13 reported that Israeli police were unsure about the announcement, as the High Court of Justice has stated in many rulings that the right to expression shall not be restricted without near certainty of a grave and genuine threat to public safety.
1: Those were the facts. We've got a couple of spins and a pro-Palestine narrative is the first one coming from the Daily Beast. Israel's most far-right government ever hasn't wasted any time in cracking down on Palestinians. This flag ban is simply symbolic of all the efforts taken to retaliate against the U.N. vote to refer the decades-long occupation of the West Bank to the International Court of Justice. Tel Aviv's goal is clear, to harm the Palestinian cause as much as possible and bring about its downfall.
0: And we have a pro-Israel stance from the Jewish News Syndicate. While waving the Palestinian Liberation Organization flag is not a crime under Israeli law, it's self-evident that its display expresses solidarity and sympathy to terror groups when it's flown in the homecoming ceremony of a convicted murderer who spent 40 years in prison. This ban is a necessary measure to curb the acceleration of terrorism and prevent further public disturbances.
1: And lastly, there's a nerd narrative. And a nerd narrative says that there is a 44% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by the year 2070. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community.
0: Eric, my father-in-law's moving and clearing out a bunch of junk from his house, and they gave us a kind of a, a flag thing to hang on the front of your house with a bunch of different, like, seasonal flags. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Should I become a flag person? You know, should like a St. Patrick's Day flag, a summer flag, a whatever flag. Not, not countries or causes, but like yeah. seasons and weird stuff. What do you think?
1: Seems like flag bearing these days is a slippery slope. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't do it, man. <laughs> it starts with the luck of the Irish and it, it ends with the PLO. Right.
0: You're right. <laughs> oh.
1: Turning our attention back to the United States as Seattle schools are suing tech giants over students' mental health. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, NPR Online News, ABC, Guardian, Fox News, and New York Post. The Seattle City School District has filed a lawsuit against Alphabet Inc., Meta Platforms Inc., Snap Inc., and ByteDance Limited, the owner of TikTok, over claims that schools can't fulfill their educational requirements due to students' anxiety, depression, and other related mental health difficulties allegedly resulting from social media usage. The 91-page suit was filed on Friday with the U.S. District Court and claims that Big Tech's contribution towards worsening mental health and behavioral disorders has forced schools to take additional measures, such as hiring additional mental health professionals, preparing lesson plans to educate students on the impact of social media, and providing additional training to teachers. According to the complaint, the social media companies have, quote, successfully exploited the vulnerable brains of youth and the content defendants curate and direct to youth, is too often harmful and exploitive. Although the Communications Decency Act provides a level of immunity to online platforms regarding third-party users and their content, the school district's lawsuit alleges they're liable for their recommendation, distribution, and promotion of content and marketing on their platforms. According to the complaint, mental issues have significantly increased in the last decade, with the proportion of Seattle public school students who reported feeling, quote, so sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more in a row that they stopped carrying out some regular activities rising by 30% between 2009 and 2019. None of the companies have yet responded. However, Meta founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg has previously denied that Facebook has a negative impact on users' mental health. He has pointed out that the platform receives revenue from ads, claiming advertisers wouldn't pay to see their products in close proximity to harmful or angry content.
0: We've got an establishment critical narrative on this social media story coming from The Guardian. Vulnerable young people are facing mounting mental health pressures, and while some factors provoking this decline, such as issues within the education system and the fallout from the COVID pandemic, are difficult to change, others are very easy to, like algorithms or social media codes. By making the relevant companies more accountable, settings, content filters, and revised guidance could help young people have healthier relationships with social media platforms.
1: Business Insider is giving us a pro-establishment narrative. Third-party users are largely responsible for their content and conduct online, and numerous regulatory processes are carried out to ensure content is not harmful. According to Meta's global head of safety, Antigone Davis, over 30 tools have been developed to support teens and families, encourage time limits, and identify more than 99% of harmful content even before it's reported by users. Evidently, social media platforms are always evolving to keep young people safe. The New York Times brings us a cynical narrative.
0: A crisis affecting mental health isn't the same as a crisis of mental health, and the reification of society, where the effects of political arrangements of power and resources start appearing like objective facts about the world, have had the consequence of swapping out political problems for scientific or technical ones characterizing issues such as the youth mental health crisis as a problem of social media addiction rather than focusing on going after unregulated tech oligopolies skips over the core fact societal problems like these are inherently political
1: finally we have a nerd narrative for this story and it says there is a 10 percent chance that the u.s will ban tiktok before 2024 and that's according to the metaculous prediction community
0: Eric, I, I zoned out while reading the story. But an unrelated <laughs> note, I uh, my my favorite TikTok creator is a guy named Old Time Hockey, and he, oh, really? Basically, he hangs out in a cabin and makes comfort foods and hangs out with you. That's kind of what his thing is. Okay, pr- send me a fun. link. Send <laughs> me a link. It
1: it's sounds per- very. Uh, it, it's it really
0: Therapeutic. It, it yeah. is. It's amazing. I don't know. I don't know how much of it's an act, and I don't want to know because
1: it feels right. like I have a best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Don't ruin it. Just (laughs) enjoy it for what it is.
0: Mm -hmm. 7,000 nurses strike in New York City. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, CNN, ABC7 New York, CNBC, and NBC4 New York. On Monday, more than 7,000 nurses at two New York City hospitals went on strike after talks broke down between the union and hospital leaders overnight. Unions are advocating for higher pay and better working conditions. The action comes amid a nationwide trend toward health care labor strikes. Nurses at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan and three Montefiore Medical Center locations in Brooklyn began the strike, citing long hours and unsafe conditions without fair pay. The hospitals offered a 19 percent raise, but it was not enough. The hospitals had reached tentative agreements with the nurses' union late Sunday evening, but the deals fell through. Hundreds of nurses picketed outside the hospital singing Twisted Sister's hit song, We're Not Gonna Take It. The New York State Nurses Association, the largest nursing union in the state, released a statement saying nurses don't want to strike and pinning blame on hospital leaders who fail to address poor work conditions. The strikes are resulting in patients being transferred and ambulances being rerouted to neighboring hospitals. Hospitals were already severely understaffed with patient-to-nurse ratios inhibiting the quality of care. Despite disruptions the strikes may cause, the nurses have the backing of union leaders and politicians throughout the state. Governor Kathy Hochul called for binding arbitration to avert the strike and said the hospitals should listen to the
1: frontline COVID nurse heroes. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. As we look at the three spins, we begin with Narrative A coming from New York Daily News. Although it is not what anyone wants, nurses in New York City have no choice but to go on strike. Working in healthcare has always been an arduous career, but the pandemic has set the industry into overdrive, burning out thousands of nurses. Hospitals are understaffed and nurses are overworked while being on the front lines. Narrative B is from Town Hall. Unions continue to lead
0: industries down the paths of destruction, and now people's health is being put in danger due to union demands causing thousands of nurses to go on strike. New York has some of the highest union membership rates in the country, which makes the dispute unsurprising, yet still disruptive for
1: New Yorkers. And the nerds from Metaculus say that there's a 50% chance that less than 12% of Americans will be represented by a labor union in 2030, and that's coming from the Metaculus prediction community.
0: Well, I don't know when I'm going to have a better chance to bring this up when we're talking about uh, Twisted Sister and the city of Manhattan, but I saw D. Snyder at the Columbus Circle Farmer's Market one time.
1: I love D. Snyder. He's cool. Yeah. He really is. He's a Good. great radio show host. He's too. a
0: really great radio show host. He's one of the real deal. Rock and rollers who kind of, I mean, everyone talks about when he went in front of Congress of indecency standards and stood up right. to him. That was awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and their music's still guy. good too. I want to rock. Song rocks. Oh, I love
1: that song. <laughs> I mean, that whole album was great. Yeah.
0: They're the real uh, deal. So yeah, I saw yeah, him. Like, he was buying mangoes and. Did and he, think talk, he had did a, you talk to him? I didn't. I, was, I, I wimped out. I don't like when I see famous people like that. And I'll, and this will be good advice when folks see me in public. Try not well, to bother that's us. True. You know, it's just, it's too much
1: turning our attention to the land and down under australia experiencing a one in 100 year flood and it's forcing evacuations here are the facts as agreed upon by sky news itv voice of america and reuters a one in 100 year flood has struck the australian outback forcing military supported evacuations of area residents the western region of kimberley received a torrent of rain from former tropical cyclone Ellie, dropping a year's worth of rain in just a few days. During a visit to the area, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said that he'd witnessed a wide-scale infrastructure damage and residents of the area who had been decimated. Albanese also said that supporting the operation were eight Australian Defence Force aircraft, three fixed-wing aircraft, and five helicopters. Authorities have expressed extreme concern for the residents of Fitzroy Crossing, a town of approximately 1,200 residents that have been cut off due to flooding on an access highway. The Fitzroy River could exceed the height of 15 meters or 49 feet, shattering previous flood records. On Sunday, more than 280 people had been evacuated from flooded areas. An evacuation center was established in Fitzroy Crossing, but the facility lacks the necessary resources for handling up to 300 residents. This month's flooding in the West comes as the eastern part of the country continues to recover from repeated flooding events over the last two years due to a multi-year La Nina weather pattern.
0: All right, thanks, Eric. We have an establishment critical narrative from The Guardian. In Australia, watching community after community flood and attempting to recover is a hard pill to swallow. The country lost a full decade from which they could have been preparing for the compounding catastrophes. Instead, the government finds itself woefully unprepared and with no idea where to begin preparing while in a perpetual state of disaster recovery. The old cliché of when it rains, it pours has been replaced with, when it rains, it floods. Not to mention searing wildfires that grip headlines worldwide.
1: And the New York Times gives us a pro-establishment narrative. Globally, Australia had been known for lagging behind other prominent nations with their inaction on climate change. Well, this is no more. The Australian government rallied to pass the Climate Change Bill of 2022, which monitors the country's progress toward national and international goals and mandates that the Minister for Climate Change report progress to Parliament annually. Australia's new seriousness marks the beginning of a transition the whole world must take on for humanity's sustainability.
0: And the cynical narrative comes from Axios. One can praise or blame the Australian government, but there is mounting evidence that these events are simply becoming less natural and tough for any administration to deal with. The land down under is on the climate front lines.
1: You think they called in Captain Kangaroo for this one?
0: (laughs) If he was still around... Uh, I think this would have all been taken care of and him and the, <laughs> uh, the Tasmanian devil as well. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Captain kangaroo was just a smidge before my time. You must've been right in the captain kangaroo wheelhouse,
1: right? I was. Yeah. That was yeah. part of my childhood.
0: Just a smidge before my time. And yet there were, you know, there were reruns galore, but, uh, oh, sure. but yeah. Yeah. I'm more That's of great. a Sesame street was big for me. You know, right. obviously that was big
1: power rangers.
0: Oh yeah, Power Rangers. I was actually slightly—I was just like a hair for Power Rangers. I mean, I still watched it, but I was too old for it.
1: What about What about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles?
0: Oh my gosh, that was was that right part in, of your childhood? It could I? I met Leonardo at Walbaum's Food
1: Market. I met a lot oh, of my. famous people over my, my man. I need to. I need to go to this market. It's like it's like going to the Hollywood Walk of Stars, <laughs> Walk right. of Fame. I met Lee. I <sighs> met
0: I met D. Snyder at the Columbus Circle Farmers Market and Walbaum's <laughs> Food Mart in Bristol, Connecticut. I met Leonardo. Leonardo, who's cool. The wow. re- it was, this was the real Leonardo, too. So that's cool. Yeah. Our final story, a study, shows a recent stark decrease in so-called disruptive science. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Nature, Technology Networks, the Register, the University of Minnesota website, and sciencealert.com. According to a Nature study released this week, despite the ever-increasing number of science and technology papers published each year, the disruptiveness of the research is declining. Russell Funk, a sociologist at the University of Minnesota, co-authored the study. The study considers so-called disruptive science to be work that takes its field in a new direction instead of simply incrementally building on previous research. Using citation data from 45 million manuscripts and 3.9 million patents, the study calculated the CD index as a measure of disruptiveness. If a paper is cited often while prior papers in the field decline in reference, it's considered to be more disruptive. The statistical analysis showed up to a 100% decline in scientific papers' disruptiveness between 1945 and 2010, while patents exhibited a 787 to 91.5% decline from 1980 to 2010. Funk acknowledges that science has become more incremental in its developments and says the trend isn't necessarily bad. He believes that a healthy scientific ecosystem is one where there's a mix of disruptive discoveries and consolidating improvement. There's no consensus as to why innovation in science is stagnating, but some believe it could be due to the need for constant publishing and the amount of time it takes to learn a field, which takes time away from more innovative work.
1: Scott, thank you for the facts of this story, and it has generated three spins. The establishment critical narrative is the first one coming from The Guardian. The scientific publishing business has become the enemy of progress. With the focus on producing studies that will bring the biggest hype, However transitory and thus reap the biggest profits, coupled with the fact that academic careers depend almost entirely on the number of papers a researcher has authored and the prestige of the journals in which they are published, there is little incentive to think outside of the box or pursue disruptive science. We've got a pro-establishment narrative from the Statistical
0: Biophysics blog. Everyone wants to see exciting breakthroughs in science and sometimes people overreact to a lack of innovation when a new study is released. However, incremental science is not a bad thing at all. In fact, it has led to some extremely valuable work and lays a foundation for future research to continue exploring. Science is a team sport, and advancing the objectives benefit the team in the long run.
1: Finally, we have a cynical narrative for this story, coming from Legal Insurrection. Science is in decline, and the effects are chilling and palpable. Unfortunately, science is no longer defined by the pursuit of knowledge and innovation. It has been captured by political ideologues who would rather suppress research into forbidden topics rather than embrace daring adventures. As long as science is more concerned with racial quotas than it is with actual discovery, we will continue to see its sad decline. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 10th, 2023.
0: Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.